If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, find Exodus chapter 13. Been continuing in our series through the book of Exodus. Again, Exodus chapter 13. Before we dive in there, just just to kind of intro into this passage, in many churches, the term theology is somewhat of a curse word. I've heard it said there's churches where you go to learn theology, and then on the other side, there's churches where you can have expressions of the Spirit and worship. They sort of pit word churches against spirit churches. But I've never understood why we needed to make enemies out of what God intended to be friends. Just consider, even before we get into Exodus chapter 13, these words from the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at this. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we see that the Word of God is authored by the Spirit through men like Moses. And this is why theology and worship are never opposed, but they're meant to serve one another. The deeper we go into the truth of God's Word, the higher our praise should echo to the glory of God. So friends, we should never be an or church, but always an and church, right? (laughs) May we be one that sees not word or spirit, not theology or worship, but word and spirit, theology and worship together. And Exodus 13 is all about theology leading to worship. Exodus 13 comes on the heels of Exodus 12, where God's redeemed his people through the Exodus. He's displayed his power and justice and wrath through the slaying of the firstborn in Egypt. Yet God also displayed his mercy and goodness by passing over the houses of Israel. God provided a substitute on their behalf. They slaughtered a lamb. They covered the doorposts with the blood so that death might pass over them. This is why it's called the Passover. And it became a regular feast for the people of God. The exodus and the theology around it led to worship and to the practice of the Passover. And Exodus 13 picks right up where Exodus 12 left off, theology preceding application. And here's the central point for us this morning, that God's people are meant to be consecrated. God's people are meant to be consecrated. And you might then ask, what does consecrated mean, Matt? Here's what it means. It means to live as people purchased for a purpose. To live as people purchased for God's purpose. So with that in mind, let's look now at Exodus chapter 13. The word of God says, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. 
Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be a sign to you, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute as its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you do not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your sons ask you, what does this mean? You shall say to them, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first open the womb, but all the firstborns of my sons I shall redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hands or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But, God's, but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had said to the sons of Israel, solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them all the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. This is the word of God. God has judged, the people are set free, God has redeemed, and friends, we often talk about redemption in the church, and and we put the emphasis on being set free, but that's only half the truth, because redemption doesn't just mean we're free from what previously held us, but it also means that we are now in service to another, The people have been set free from slavery in Egypt in order that they might be servants to Yahweh, to the God who redeemed them. Redemption is really an exchange of servanthoods. 
We are not simply set free. We are purchased by God to be in service to him. And the Apostle Paul actually speaks about this in the New Testament as well. In Romans chapter 6, verse 22, look at this. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. This may make some of us uncomfortable with the language Paul uses here, but one of his favorite terms for himself as a Christian is that he is a doulos, a slave, a bondservant to the God who purchased him. He understood that God had set him apart, made him holy, made him and remade him for a purpose. Paul opens the book of Romans the book of Titus, and the book of Philippians by reminding us that our identity is that we are slaves who have been purchased by God. This is true for us as well. We as as believers have been redeemed and consecrated by our God. And Exodus 13 was for the Israelites a way for them to reenact and remember this, all that happened here, this redemption and this consecration. But now we as the church can look on this and see four areas of our life that God wants us to consecrate to him. Four areas of your life that belong to God and that we're called to live like they belong to him. Here's the first point. God calls us to consecrate our families. That's where God begins in Exodus 13, is right at home with the family. Look at chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Notice he starts by saying, Consecrate your firstborn to me. It is mine. It is holy and mark it off as such. This is a reminder, friends, that your family belongs to God. Hear me here. Husbands, your wife, before she's your wife, is God's daughter. And that means that we must treat her as such. And consider, friends, that you may have, when you were dating your wife, been a little bit afraid of her father. (laughs) Let me tell you, even after you marry her, there's another heavenly father you need to be a lot more afraid of, right? (laughs) And that we must honor our our spouses. Think about your children, friends, and your grandchildren. They belong to God. You're simply a steward. (laughs) Have we come to realize that God is not simply Lord here in this building for a couple hours during the week, but he's actually Lord over our homes as well? Our faith is not simply meant to be something that we check off a box or, well, okay, I've done an hour here, maybe two hours, or, man, if I'm a really good Christian, I'm here for two hours on Sunday, and I'm there for an hour on Wednesday, like, but that's all the time I'm going to give to him. Friends, it is meant to permeate all we do. Does your faith permeate your family? Let me say, none of us are going to do this perfectly. And it's going to look a lot different depending on what stage of life you're in. And as your kids grow older and and things change and you move and different things happen, families with kids, hear this, God bless you (laughs) as you try to, to raise up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Think about it. Do we teach our kids to pray? 
Do we see that it is our responsibility to to teach and to lead the kids that God has given to us? And that doesn't mean we do it alone. Some hear that and go, well, if that's the case, then I don't need the church or anybody else's help. No, the, the church is meant to come alongside families as we seek to do this, to take this seriously, that the family belongs to God. And God actually gave the Passover and other feasts in order to pique the curiosity of children. Did you know that your, ch- that your child asking questions all the time is actually meant to be a gift from God? Maybe that'll encourage some of the parents frustrated this week with the why, Dad. <laughs> why, Mom? Tell me. Look what happens. Look at verse uh, 14 of Exodus 13. And when in time it comes, your son asks you, what does this mean? Why, Dad? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hands or the frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Did you see? He's assuming that the whole family is going to be involved with this and that there's going to be one of the children that's going to go, hey, can you explain this to me? The curiosity of children is a gift from God. And he says the parents were going to teach them both formally And also just informally, in the car, on the way home. Verse 16 is great. Mark it on your hands and as the frontlets between your eyes. In other words, keep God and his word and all that he's done centered and clear in your life. Set patterns in your life where you bring along the children in the study and pursuit of God. In fact, Jesus' own parents did this, and it's an example to us. Hold your place in Exodus 13 and look over at Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 22. Look at this. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they, this being Jesus' parents, this is Mary and Joseph, brought him, being baby Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Friends, even Jesus' parents brought him to be consecrated. They brought him, again, not because Jesus needed anything, not because Jesus as a baby probably would have fully understood the whole thing, but they did it in order to set patterns of what mattered most to them. We don't bring the youngest of children here because they're necessarily going to understand everything the preacher says or even everything that happens in preschool or kids crossing. We do it to begin to set a rhythm And to obey God. And if it starts at the top, it will trickle down to our kids and our families. They put God's word on their hands and on the frontals of their family life. He says like it's hanging right in front of your face or it's on the back of your hands. Now, 
Some will hear this and they'll go, man, I'm not doing a very good job at this. I'm going to go home and I'm going to try to give hours of teaching to my children and just make them sit and focus. And I'm going to make up for this this afternoon. I'm going to teach them everything I know. We're going to do a verse-by-verse study through the book of Leviticus. And I got pictures. I'm going to take them in, right? Let me tell you this. It doesn't work that way. Don't go home and do that. This is done through a slow and steady process. Bringing your children along with you. And it doesn't have to be this big elaborate thing. Sometimes simply reading a verse, singing a song, and praying at the dinner table will have such an impact on your child's life, even young, that as they grow, you can begin to sort of phase it up from there. So do this carefully Be wise in how you do it. And if you're looking for encouragement on how to do it, let me encourage you to go home this week or even this afternoon and read Proverbs 1 to 9. In Proverbs 1 to 9, we see God, it pictures God as the perfect father teaching wisdom to his children. And it really gives a very helpful way of how we're to model God and how we teach our children to consecrate our family, to not leave our faith at church, but to bring it in everything we do, in the car, in the house, praying before we eat. Maybe if your child says they're bored this week, grab the Bible off the shelf. One of two things will happen. They'll either read the Bible or they're never going to tell you they're bored again. (laughs) You're welcome, right? Keep it front and center, We're called to live as people purchased for a purpose, and that means consecrating our families. But it means more than just that, doesn't it? God also calls us to consecrate our possessions. God calls us to consecrate our possessions. Look at verse 2. Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whether... whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast... Is mine. He says, the children in your home aren't simply mine. He says, the beast in the field is mine as well. Remember, in this day, cattle was currency. Cattle was the possessions and, and all of the goods. People would trade them. They'd eat them. They'd take the milk from them. They had all sorts of uses for them. God having their cows is a much bigger deal than God having your credit card. <laughs> this was everything these people had to live on. And God says, it's mine. Because this is so important. Everything you own is actually God's before it's yours. He owns everything. Isn't that what we read in Psalm 24 this morning? That the, that the world is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And we're called to be good stewards and to be generous with what God has given to us. And frankly, this is a lesson that I've had to learn uh, growing up and being at, at a different stage, at a younger stage and a beginning stage in life. I've had to learn the hard way. I've not always been as faithful as as I should be with everything God has given to me, particularly in the area of giving and generosity. But the Lord's really taught me something I want to give to you, and it's the principle of the first fruits. Give to God out of your first, not out of your last. Give him your best and not your leftovers. And friends, this will have an impact on how we think about everything we own particularly our money and our possessions. And I know when the pastor starts talking about money, everybody's like, I got somewhere to be. I'm going to cringe. And people often cringe. Let me tell you this. 
that guilt is a terrible motivator for people to do anything at all. If you've ever been guilted into trying to do something, guilt will never make someone give as they ought. It will actually produce less giving and less godly giving. Because God calls us to give, whether of our money or our time or our resources, whatever it is, with gladness. And faith and gladness lead us to that, not guilt. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He says this, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he decides in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So let me apply this to us. God has called us to give with what he's given to us. And God has created the church to carry out the most important mission in the world. So there's plenty of places you can give and places you can volunteer and give your resources and all of these things. But have we ever considered giving to our own church where God is working in us? He's redeemed us so that we might see others redeemed with the same gospel message. And Paul encourages us, That wherever we are in our giving, as we think about that, to make sure we've decided in our own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Some are going to say, wait, so if I'm not under a strict law of how much to give, let me pull these three pennies out of my pocket and drop them in the plate and God will be happy with me, right? (laughs) And I would say this, that if compulsion leads you to give more, then it's likely that you weren't giving to God as you were called to. Because he desires a cheerful, sacrificial giver. So let me encourage you to seek the scripture about your possessions, about your giving, about your generosity. For some, some people see the 10%, the tithe principle, as a place to start. And that's great. For others, that's maybe not possible to do. But whatever you do, make sure you do it cheerfully with an eye and a heart toward God. And others of us may need to recognize that Well, the tithe principle is a great thing. If you actually look at the Old Testament tithes, when you put them all together, some of those folks were giving 30 to 40%, not just the simple, 10. And God and Jesus would remind us that to whom much is given, much is required. And that where a man's wallet is, Jesus says, there his heart is also, right? Right? And notice, ultimately, friends, we'll go, well, you know, God, God only wants 10%. That means I can do whatever I want with the 90, right? Remember, God owns it all. And he's worthy of the other 90%. He's not told us just to give a little bit and do whatever we want with the other 90. He says, give it all, consecrate it all to me. Make sure we use everything we have in a way that would please him whether that's in service to your family and honoring the one who redeemed you. In fact, even Paul says the only way to give as you ought is to realize you can never outgive God. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Look at this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. He says, consider the gospel, consider the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus as the greatest motivator for your sacrificial giving. 
Consider God was saying in Exodus 13, think about the people that have been redeemed through the Exodus. And for us, look back at the way Jesus has redeemed us so that we might be glad, sacrificial givers, so that others might be redeemed as well. So friends, the gospel, not guilt, is always a better motivator for you and for your life and for the life of others. And see giving as something we do through the church, not simply to the church. To impact young people in our community, families. We've seen many new faces here at our church. And, and, and to see an impact in not only our church here, but in Peru and Haiti and here in our community to the uttermost parts of the world. God calls us to live as a people purchased for a purpose with our families with our possessions. Third, God calls us to consecrate our calendar. God calls us to consecrate our calendar. Look at verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you were going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. God sets out for them the feast of the unleavened bread, which may not mean much to you, right? But God in the Old Testament connects up this feast with all sorts of other feasts. As you read through the Bible, you'll notice they make a big deal out of having some feasts and some parties. That's why it's biblical to have potlucks, right? These people like to get together and they like to feast, right? But no, the main point for us is that God would want us to orient our lives around what mattered most. He oriented their whole calendar around remembering what God did. The Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread happened in the month of Abib, which was the beginning of the year. That's around uh, April in our calendar. And it was a means of remembering what God would do. And there's all these other feasts, the Feast of Booths, and the most important one, the Day of Atonement, all of which were meant to remember God and what he's done for them. So here's the message. God cares about your calendar. Think about this. If you were to look at the Israelites' calendar, you'd go, man, those people are really devoted. That's super intense. But what would people say if they saw our calendar, whether what we write down or put in our phone or just what we do with our day and our life? Remember, God is the God of time, and he has given it to us to be good stewards. And my senior saints here can testify to how quick that time gets away, right? We're to be good stewards of the time God has given us. What does your calendar say matters most to you? Certainly, there's things we're going to be busy with. We're going to be busy with work because we have mouths to feed at home. And those who have teenagers, they eat a lot. Amen? Right? Your nine to five, if done to feed your family and done with excellence, can be done to glorify God. But we also need to make sure we schedule in rest. 
right? The, the God has modeled this for us in the Sabbath. We also got to make sure we fit in family time and sports and other commitments. Where can I fit God into this? I think the first fruits principle is really important here to look at your week or your month and to start with what matters most, to plug in time with God into our schedule, to make sure family time is put in there. Of course, we've got work and all these things. Don't let our time control us. Take control of our time. To look ahead, be proactive. And friends, use technology. If it's not on my phone calendar, it doesn't exist. (laughs) And reminders and things to keep us on track. Friends, time is short, and we need to be good stewards of it. And if this is something you're wanting to think through, I don't typically give book recommendations from the pulpit, but I'm going to break that rule today. And then there's one book I loved. It got me through college. And if you love productivity and time management, and you want it fused in with a good bit of some good theology, here's a book for you. What's Best Next by Matt Perman. I'd encourage you, if you're a reader, go get it. I think it's on audiobook. It's short, accessible chapters. He doesn't want to take up a bunch of your time. <laughs> He wants to give this to you in little five-minute sections or so that you can read good theology, practical steps, worth your time to maximize the time that God has given to you. He says, consecrate your family, your possessions, your calendars as people purchased for a purpose. And finally, at the end of the passage, we get an important reminder that through it all, God consecrates our steps. This is such an important reminder that wherever we go, God goes with us and God actually goes ahead of us. Look at verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. In other words, friends, God didn't take them on Interstate 24 to get where they were going. He wanted them on the back roads. You know, the backcountry roads that take a little longer, but the view's a little prettier, and there's less traffic accidents, it seems, right? God says, I know that if they see the nearer way there, and they see the war and everything that's going on there, they're going to return to Egypt. So God took them the long way. So let me encourage you, if God has ever called you to take the long way somewhere and you've wondered why, Exodus 13 is a word for you. God may have you avoid something that he knew you couldn't handle or didn't want or would turn you around. God consecrates your steps. They are his. Because God is not only in control of where we are, but where we'll go. And do we make the most of where God has placed us? Consider this. Acts 17 is super helpful. Look at this. And he, being God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is not actually far from each one of us. Friends, God has not only laid out where we are, but what the boundaries of our dwelling shall be. God determined how big your yard would be. (laughs) 
and how big the borders of our life would be. He built the borders around our life that we might seek him and recognize his hand all over it. God has put you where he's put you for a purpose. God's put you with those neighbors that get on your nerves for a purpose with those co-workers for a purpose, with that crazy family you're in. Not the time to look around, right? That crazy family you're in for a purpose. God's the one who puts you there. And do we live like he's put us there on purpose? If you've ever wanted proof that God's in control of the destination that you're going, I want you to consider what happens next in Exodus 13. Look at verse 19. I love this. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and shall carry up my bones with you from here. We read about him carrying Joseph's bones. I don't know if he carried them in a backpack, but I always imagine he's carrying his buddy around in a backpack with him, right? And he's taking him along. And we read so many generations removed now that Joseph, in his last will and testament in Genesis 50, said, hey, when you get out of Egypt, take my bones with you. And it's a super interesting irony because Joseph was the one that brought the people into into Egypt. And now Joseph's in a backpack with them as they head out of Egypt. And God proved that he's in control of not only our steps, but of our final destination of our finish line, only by God's power and by his hand was was Joseph going to get buried in the land that God had promised to his people. God proved faithful. And God even provides for his people on the journey. Let's look at this where the passage ends. Chapter 13, verse 20. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and led them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. This is incredible. They're being led out, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. Consider that before this, God came to Moses by fire, and now he's leading all the people by fire. And this is going to play an important role in the people's journey in the chapters ahead. But you may ask, why cloud and why fire? Why not do this another way? Why not do this a different way? We're we're told in the verses that part of this was so that the people could follow without confusion. If there's a giant cloud, you're not going to lose yourself, right? You're going to go, I'm following that. And then the fire was there to light their way by night. But I think there's a little more to it. I I do love what one Old Testament scholar had to say. Dr. Peter Gentry, who's one of my favorites, he, he, he gave a very practical answer. He said that the pillar of cloud was there for air conditioning and the pillar of fire there for heat. I like that. These people don't have cars in the day where they can turn on and off heat and air as they're going through the desert. Remember, it gets hot in the desert. And it actually gets very cold at night in the desert. And so God was not only leading them very clearly, he was providing air conditioning for them as they went. In other words, God was providing for what they needed for everything he called for them to do. And I want you to know, friends, God will never lead you where he will not provide for you. Now, 
I don't know if these people, I don't know if the air conditioning coming off of the clouds was necessarily as luxurious as your house. Probably not, right? But God did provide for them. He didn't make necessarily the path easy, but he did make a way. And the Apostle Paul, again, is so helpful here. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. This is one of my favorite verses. Look at this. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You see it? There's four alls there. All grace, all sufficiency, all times, and all things, and even throws in for an every good work. This is the promise of Exodus 13. The people here were to live in light of their redemption. They're purchased people, consecrated people for a purpose. And friends, we are to do the same. We are to live in light of our redemption. We are to live in light of our redemption. We're to look back and in a greater way, God has redeemed us out of slavery to sin and death so that we might pursue him to a glorious promised land. God has, through Christ, purchased for us his promises and his purposes. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Let me show you a few places where it talks about this. And do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. And if you're going to glorify him with your body, that means everything you do is going to glorify him because you're bought with a price. 1 Peter 1.18 tells us to live our life knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spots. And God would remind us, Finally, that God's people have access to God's resources to do what he has called us to do. It's incredible. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 is a promise you can claim. That's yours. God has given you all sufficiency so that you can do all things that God would call you to do. And if you don't believe that, Peter tells us something similar in 2 Peter. Look at this. His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires. That's Peter's big flowery way of saying that everything God has called you to do, he's given you the resources to do. God's not only given you the car for the travel ahead, he's put gas in it. And gas is expensive. (laughs) And he's purchased it through the shed blood of Jesus. And we're to live in light of that redemption and to live empowered and confident that God's given us everything we need to do what he calls us to do. We are to be consecrated people, living as people purchased for a purpose. Maybe that's not where you find yourself today. Maybe there's something in your life you're holding on to and going, I I know Jesus is Lord of it, but I want to be Lord of it more. 
Maybe you're holding some area of your life back that that Jesus you know is Lord of, but you want to be in control of it. And the invitation today is that you'd hand it over to him to be done with how he would have it be done. That's what repentance is. Changing our mind and our life and handing over to God what's his to do as he would have it be done. And today, our Redeemer stands ready to receive us anew. He is the Passover Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He shed his blood so that we could pass through death into everlasting life and so that we could live for him in the presence, empowered by the Spirit and led not by a pillar of cloud and fire, but by a nail-scarred Savior who's leading the world toward our good and his glory. Jesus died and is risen again so that we can come in repentance and faith and find forgiveness of our sins, but also grace and mercy for the road ahead. Did you know that the gospel, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, isn't simply sort of the ABCs of the Christian life? It certainly is. It is how you get to heaven and how you become a Christian, but it's the A to Z of the Christian life. It's literally meant to empower everything we do. Because Jesus died and rose again, everything is different, and we're to live in light of that redemption. And will we lay before him whatever we are holding back from him? In these next few moments, you'll have a moment to respond to God's word. Maybe you need to come and you need to lay your family before God and consecrate them to him and go, God, I know I've been living for me, but I need to, to, to devote my family to you and I need to make some changes. And I don't know what that looks like, but I need your help to do what you've called me to do. Maybe for others, it's your possessions or your calendar or something in your life that you're hanging on to and you want to be Lord over. And Jesus says, no, I'm Lord over that. Submit it to me. Whatever you need to do, whether you need to come forward and pray or pray where you are, Jesus stands ready to receive you. And in these next moments, may we take serious the call to do business with God. Let's stand and let's pray together. Jesus, you have come to die on the cross, to set us free from sin and death and hell so that we might know you and love you and serve you with all of our life. Today I ask that, Lord, you would have us give everything we have to you to go all in with our families, our possessions, our calendars, knowing that you are the one who leads our steps. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that lives inside us. And I pray that in these next moments, if none of us have trusted you as Lord of our life, that we would begin that journey today, that that they would, through repentance and faith, come to you and confess you as Lord. Lord, may we not just make you Lord in this place, but Lord over everything in our life. And so, Lord, whatever we need to do, whatever commitments we need to make, meet with us in these next moments. Let me ask and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace that flows like a river. Whoa.
as we close. First, if you've visited, been visiting with us or you want to get connected further into how to dwell in light of our redemption here, there's a card in the back you can fill out, a red Get Connected card. You can fill that out online. We'd love to have that info and be able to follow up with you and your family in the days ahead. Just a reminder, there's also opportunities to give to support the work outside of this church. We've got the food pantry here today, so make sure you know kind of what you're giving to, what each basket is on your way out. But also, I'd encourage you to look in your bulletin before you leave. We have an opportunity to bless Ed Mean, our Peruvian missionary, this time of year. And so there's an opportunity just to mark on your giving if you want to go above and beyond on that. And bless Ed Mean and the work he's doing. There's an update in there on the churches they've planted and all sorts of stuff we're going to be sharing. So it's an opportunity to do that. But a reminder as we head out into the world that 2 Corinthians 9.8 is a promise for us as we go. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Amen.